it's a constant topic of fascination, isn't it, for those of us in the real estate business, this long and short term distinction. And I mean, what I'm about to say, I would say, wouldn't I? But but of course, I, I believe it to be true, which is that as a long term owner in real estate, you really do have the ability to make significant impact socially as well as financially in a way that's very difficult to do with a shorter term view, just because of the nature of real estate and the huge capital sums and time scales involved, not to mention the environmental side, which we'll come on to, which necessarily requires a, a longer term view to be able to, to warrant the time and the effort and the capital invested when you know the rewards environmentally are only going to come after many years. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on September 27th, is a conversation with the CEO of Grosner, Mark Preston. Grosner is the 340-year-old family office and commercial property business owned by the Grosner family. Their young patriarch and chair, Hugh Grosner, is the Duke of Westminster. This is a company that I've known well for the past 25 years as a long-term client in my search practice. Mark and I had a fascinating discussion about the meaning and responsibility and indeed stewardship that ultra long-term ownership brings to their approach to the real estate business. Their website says that this is a 340-year-old company, but it actually goes back further than that. And Mark's job is to do his best to do his part to make sure the business is running strong for another 340 years. These are actually almost unrelatable words to use in the real estate investment business where we so often think in terms of three, five, seven-year holds. And unfortunately, also in the political world where long-term thinking has become an alien concept. So we talk a lot on the podcast about long-termerism from Grosner's perspective, particularly around, of course, the issues and responsibilities around carbon and community benefits for property owners. We talk about this all the time on Leading Voices, and I will use Mark's words and not my own. It's about being a responsible citizen. Over the long term, unless we have a positive impact in our communities and environment, we will not survive and we don't deserve to survive. One way or the other, we'd be thrown out and we deserve to be thrown out. It's no longer an option. Wow. Mark's words are a call to action if I ever heard one and coming from literally the longest tenured landlord and developer on the planet. I checked in with my friend Gunnar Branson, who runs AFIRE, the International Real Estate Investment Association, yesterday. And when I told him about the conversation with Mark, he also said, wow. But he also observed that Mark's perspective is actually mainstream in Europe, where core investors are thinking much more long-term about carbon equity and affordability than we are here in the States. So in keeping with the spirit of leading voices, I will look over the coming months to bring more international perspectives to these conversations. You know, I love these interviews on Leading Voices, and these are not dissimilar to conversations I get to have with my clients and candidates in my work as a recruiter at CRG. The big work that we do in the real estate industry and how we choose to do it is rarely neutral in terms of these environmental and societal impacts. And I love hearing these stories of leadership in this regards on Leading Voices and helping foster it in my day-to-day search business. I hope that you're enjoying the show. As always, please share your favorite episodes with friends and colleagues. We've now archived conversations literally exploring every different facet, nook, and cranny of the real estate business and the built environment, which I hope you will explore and share with others, especially young people trying to find their way into the business. If you have comments on the show, guest suggestions, or just want to get in touch regarding the show or our search practice, please email me at mslepin at Partners. Again, mslepin at crgpartners.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Mark Preston. And stay tuned at the end of the episode for some additional music associations with the Duke. So let's jump into it because we do not have a lot of time. First of all, Mark Preston, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. You're going to be the first true international guest, and we're going to talk all about investing across the globe as well as a lot about stewardship and climate change. So I'm just thrilled to have you on the call, and you will be the first guest on the show for a company I think over 50 years old, let alone 340 years old. So even with Heinz and Zell and Boston Properties and some of these other companies, even Trammell Crow Company, nothing like you guys. So welcome to the show. And Mark, I'll let you introduce yourself and the Grosvenor family of companies, I guess, in your own words. Thank you, Matt, for having me on 
Uh, delighted to be honoured honoured to be your first whatever you just called me your first truly international <laughs> guest that's great and uh, nice to see you again after a while so yes my name is Mark Preston I'm chief executive of Grosvenor I also carry the rather strange title of executive trustee and when we come perhaps a bit later to talk about structure and ownership I, I can explain that in greater detail but for your listeners essentially it's the same thing as being chief executive of both the property business that we call Grosvenor and also all of the other non-property activities that the family have within the portfolio. Grosvenor is really the best, simplest way of thinking about Grosvenor is in three different buckets. Firstly, the real estate bucket, the international urban property development and investment company that most of your listeners will know of. Mm -hmm. Secondly, a food and ag investment business, which is only 12 years old and probably most of your listeners will not be aware of. Uh, We've begun to invest in early stage and venture investments in the food and ag tech space. And then thirdly, what we call the family office, many of your listeners might think the whole of Grosvenor is a family office, but in our definition, the family office really is is all those other activities, our financial investments portfolio, we have a large equities, fixed income and alternatives portfolio, as as you might imagine. And also the other activities, some of them are non-business activities of the family activities, so the households, the rural estates, the sporting estates the chattels, the the archive, the fine art collection, and the foundation, the family's Mm. charitable foundation, all run on that side of the organization. So those are the three branches, if you like, with the first one, the property business, being much the largest share of the balance sheet projection and certainly much the largest share of the number of people working here. And so I I look after all of that for the Grosvenor family. Got it. And it's typical for the family office, and it's better for the family office to be separated from the operating company. They're different disciplines. So... That's not an atypical comment. It just takes a large family office to have to have much attention spent to it. Yeah, quite so. And and give a sense of, since we're going to talk primarily about real estate on the conversation, just give a sense of the size, scale, and breadth. And then we'll talk about history in a few minutes because history is fascinating. Sure. So the, the property uh, the property group, well, with the way that the sterling and the dollar has moved, um, since you and I last spoke, the real estate activities were about 15 billion US dollars. But given the way the given the way sterling's been, uh, the dollar's been appreciating and sterling's been depreciating, it's probably now closer to about 12 in in dollar terms now. This is in three weeks, so that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing, exactly, pretty astonishing, quite dramatic. I mean, they're sort of well, we'll come maybe we we'll come back to it, but yep. the food and ag business is much much smaller. Uh, it's about um, Oh, it's only about five or five or six percent of, of of the property scale, and then the rural estates and the private side is a figure figure that we don't publish, but is again a small a small amount relative to the, to the urban property. The urban property is much the largest, three quarters or so of the whole thing. And that's across the globe. So just give some sense of how much is in the UK, how much in the sure. US, how much in Asia, Europe. Yeah. Of that urban property, twelve billion pounds. About half of that's in the UK, and of the other half, about Two-thirds of it's in North America, and the remaining third is spread around Asia, continental Europe, and other markets. That's in very rough terms, Matt. Okay, fair, fair deal. And talk about the history, because I've never talked to anyone with a, from a 340-year-old company, and what started this venture off? Well, I think if we're going to talk about the history of the Grosvenor family's uh, wealth and mm-hmm. business activities... We really have to go further back. We have to go back to 1066. Some of your listeners who speak French will have detected that the name Grosvenor is actually two French words, Grosvenor, which means great huntsman. And first Grosvenor, Hugh Grosvenor, the current Duke is also called Hugh, yes. as it happens. First Grosvenor was the Duke, the um, William the Conqueror's huntsman and came across from Normandy with William the Conqueror in 1066. And Presumably because he was a very good huntsman. I don't know, history doesn't relate, but one can assume he did lots of good things with his hunting weapons. Uh-huh. And as a consequence, he was granted lands in on the Welsh-English border. And some of those lands in Wales are still owned by Grosvenor today. And it's over the border into England in Cheshire, where the Grosvenor family set up their home and have been ever since. So really, it's a thousand-year history. And in the Welsh-English borders... The family first started to make serious money, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. in mining, lead and tin mining, um, going a long way back. But the, but the modern history, what we call modern, which you will find rather laughable, 
uh, the modern history starts, as you say, 340 years ago when the property side really kicked in. And the reason that became preeminent in the Grosvenor family's fortunes was because of a marriage between Sir Richard Grosvenor in the early 17th century with a lady called Mary Davis, who brought with her as her dowry some rather indifferent agricultural land outside the city of London, what was then the city of London, which we now know to be the West End of London, but of course then was, was farmland. And that land has become Mayfair and Belgravia, which of course now is some of the most valuable property in, in Europe, if not in, in, in across most of the world. So that's how it, it, it came about, through, through careful political and careful marital decision-making. I think I'd probably put it that way. It sounds almost as good as Game of Thrones, but not quite. Yeah. Well, I hope it doesn't have quite the same ending. <laughs> but probably not. I, we'll go there. But the it, it's so interesting because you talk about land that was outside of the city center. We know that in all of our cities that we have been developing in my lifetime over the last 25 years in every city, right? The new place is a place that was not quite rural, but suburban or whatever, underutilized property. And then it becomes... Mayfair and Belgravia, which is kind of an unbelievable story once you have that perspective of time. Yeah, well, and I suppose the advantage that land ownership has had in this country is that property rights have never been removed by war or by revolution, you know, whereas most of the rest of Europe, you can't say that. There's either been a revolution or a war or something dramatic which has seized seized property rights from private owners. That's never happened in the UK. It hasn't happened yet. Perhaps mm-hmm. I should say that. Right. Uh, and so that's enabled a family like the Groveners to hold on to and, and improve and develop and do all the things that we're going to come on to talk about doing with long-term confidence that these right. are things that are going to be worth doing for the sake of the long term. And that is a really important, ultimate, fundamental stability for all of us investing in properties that you can trust the legal rights of property ownership, which, of course, is, 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 is definitely not the case in many places in the world today. So it continues to this day to be a very important, fundamental principle of real estate investing for all of your listeners, I'm sure. But certainly for us, we we hold great stead by that. We're going to come back to that thought of long term. But it's interesting because in most of real estate that we're familiar with in real estate investment, long term is a five-year hold. That's a a midterm. But a long-term hold is 15 years. And so what you're describing doesn't exist in the mindset of most people in the commercial real estate business, apart from family ownership. Right, so families that own, you know, for a couple generations, real estate in New York, but even that's, you know, four, two to three generations. Absolutely, and I mean that is a, it's a constant topic of fascination, isn't it, for those of us in the real estate business? This long and short-term distinction, and right. I mean what I'm about to say, I would say, wouldn't I? But but of course, I I believe it to be true, which is that as a long-term owner in real estate, you really do have the ability to make significant impact socially as well as financially in a way that's very difficult to do with a shorter term view just because of the nature of real estate and the huge capital sums and time scales involved not to mention the environmental side which we'll come on to which necessarily requires a a longer term view to be able to to warrant the time and the effort and the capital invested when you know the rewards environmentally are only going to come after many years of course the flip side so that's the benefit of it the flip side of course which many people will quite rightly challenge is that the family ownership is potentially not adequately held to account, is not scrutinized by independent parties to keep feet to the fire, and there's a risk of complacency and laziness. And I think that's a very real concern that we have to keep our minds on. And I think one of the ways Grosvenor tries to address that is by having quite a significant number of non-executives and independent trustees and non-executives sit on our various different boards to hold, help hold us to account to make sure that we are not becoming complacent and lazy and idle mm-hmm. um, and really continuing to, to, to give us that, if you like, the benefit of the shorter term account- accountability, while at the same time having the benefits of long term strategy and planning and and capital deployment. Yeah. I want to come back to that in a second because I just want to get through some more definitions, but I also want to think about complacency versus long-termism. And sometimes complacency means you're not getting as much out of the real estate as you can, or you're not managing it well, or you're managing it poorly. There's lots of different meanings to that word complacency. And they're not all wrapped up in pushing rents or not pushing rents or maximizing the value or maximizing long-term value. 
in your tenure with the company, and this has been your job, we're going to talk about you at the end of the conversation a little bit, but during your tenure with the company, you've worked for two Dukes. So Hugh took over a dozen years ago or half a dozen years ago from his father. Is that correct? That's right. When his father died in August 2016, so six years ago, he, as soon as his father died, he became the Duke of Westminster, just as just as King Charles became the king as soon as the Queen died. It's an automatic yep. uh, transfer of the title to the to the eldest son. And uh, there are very few titles in this country which pass to through the female line. Some do, but most don't. Fascinating. One last question. I bout this to get a sense of family office because in the states, when you're in a family business and you get to generation two, three, four, there become a ton of people. And so it becomes watered down in terms of the benefits to that group of folks. But I'm thinking that, so therefore, if you've been through seven, eight, nine, 10 generations, it must be way watered down, but maybe not because it's closely held with a small group. Is that the case? Yeah, it's a good question and it's easily misunderstood. And of course, the number of generations in the Grosvenor family is a lot more than, because the dukedom was, in fact, the, the Duke, the, the Westminster dukedom was the last ever dukedom granted by Queen Victoria. So actually, the title of the Duke for, for, for the Grosvenor family is actually quite a, a new title. Right. So he's only, he's only the seventh Duke. There are many, many more generations before the dukedom was granted of Grosvenor. So it's actually probably 30 generations right. we're talking about. So it's a huge number. Right. But the reason that it's still a fairly narrow uh, group of people that in my job I have to concern myself with is because that's the way the organization has chosen to to deal with inheritance. In other words, it has kept the beneficiary group narrow, i.e. just the direct family and heirs and successors of, of, of whoever the current Duke of Westminster is. They've not gone to all the third cousins and fourth cousins and fifth cousins. Got it. They could have done. I mean, there's nothing stopping them doing so, but they chose not to. Uh, and that has resulted in a much easier management challenge for me, <laughs> but also a far more effective uh, concentration of assets than, as you rightly say, would have been the case if we'd been distributing it more widely. Got it. Okay, let's talk about real estate. And let's let's hold off on the stewardship and long-termerism discussion and just talk about your international investing activities and how you choose where you spend your time, where you make your investments. And in this crazy world that you described a few minutes ago is almost upside down right now, how, how do you allocate capital within these different places and where do you find opportunity? Right. Well, I mean, the, the trustees meet every four years to have a long-term strategy session. And that's the time when we look long into the future. And I really do mean long. We have 30-year and 50-year projections of, you know, obviously we can't, we can't accurately <laughs> begin right. to, out, to, to look at the economic outlook over the, that, that, that time frame. But we can look at how the family may look and what beneficiaries there might be and that kind of thing. And we look at um, asset allocation and how we feel we should deploy our capital. We do not start with a blank sheet of paper. We start with what we have, which is a very dominant real estate business. So we're very, obviously we've immediately got a question as to whether we've got too much in real estate. And the conclusion we come to every time we look at this is, no, we like having this dominant position in real estate. It served us very well. It's an asset class that we think will continue to perform well for us, et cetera, et cetera. So we've usually started with a, a proper top-down analysis, but then met it, if you like, met it in the middle with an analysis of what we have and then made some adjustments. Right. Uh, and the, the, the continuing theme through every such review that I've been a part of, which is quite a few now, has been diversification. That ultimately we are well served by having a diversified portfolio by geography, by currency, by asset class, by management team, uh, but recognizing that we have one very dominant sectoral exposure, that is to real estate. And therefore, within real estate, we'd better be sure we're getting getting some good diversification sectorally and geographically within real estate, which we, which we very much do, as I'll come on to explain. And let's first talk about the uh, financial returns. We're going to talk about social environmental returns next. But think about, and you've been through probably half a dozen, if not more, of those five-year planning sessions. How has it changed, and what does that allocation look like now, and how do you think of the world in the places that are more risky, less risky, and might have the biggest benefit? Yeah, I think probably the, the most significant changes have been recognizing that we should do things other than property. 
So the food and ag, which was a big strategic change a dozen years ago, right, uh, and has now got got going very significantly. The financial investments portfolio, we didn't have a very significant equities and fixed income portfolio 15, 20 years ago. Now we do. Mm-hmm. So I think that moving into to other asset classes has been one feature of the change over that period of time. Right. The other one has been probably closer to over the last 30 years, really most of my career at Grosvenor has been the expansion of the property activity from what was previously basically London plus a few cities in North America 30 years ago, 40 mm-hmm. years ago, to, to offices in 16 different countries around the world and a fairly diverse portfolio in, in continental Europe, Asia, Australia, Central and South America, as well as North America and the UK. So that's been a, been a gradual but very material move over time into more diversified property and other sectors, I would say, has been the, the movement over this last 20 or 30 years. Fair. And talk about those allocations in terms of the new geographies you've gone into and then how you both enter those markets, how you view the diversification helping, and then also are you entering into different types of properties? Because you've talked about property allocation yeah. as well. It's an interesting time to ask yes. that question, Matt, because very, recent, very recently, literally over the last six to nine months, we've concluded that our indirect business, what we call our indirect business, which we started about 10 years ago, and by indirect, I mean rather than having our own boots on the ground, our own investment people, our own development people, our own asset managers sitting in an office around different parts of the world, investing with control, controlling our own assets, which was very much at the core of our strategy until the end of last year. Uh, having had a 10-year, 12-year experience with the indirect team who are going and investing in minority stakes uh, with operating partners, but more active than, I mean, not just being an LP, we would perhaps invest with the GP as well as with the LP so that we've got a bit more, you know, certainly got an investment committee seat, for example, that kind of thing. So we're quite an active right. investor. That activity has been very successful on a number of different counts. Firstly, we've had very good returns from that activity. Secondly, it's been able to get us into new sectors and markets much more effectively and efficiently and quickly than we could if we were to try to put our own people on the ground. And of course, it's also been able, we were able to make small investments in new places, move in, move out, switch around much more flexibly than by having our own people on the ground. But that's a big change for Grosvenor because historically we would have taken the view, no, 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 we want to control our own activities. We only want to invest where we're the, we're the operator. We control the asset management. So over the last dozen or so years, we've been experimenting with that in what we call our indirect business. It's been very, very successful for us. Mm-hmm. I think we've probably found ourselves to be quite an amenable partner to operating businesses who are looking for not huge, huge hundreds of millions of institutional capital and funds, but those who are looking for you know, tens of millions who can invest at a stage where they recognize that growth is in for the long term and we're not going to turn around after three years and say, hey, you know, we've had enough of you, we're off somewhere else. And that's been very successful for us. So we're going to grow that significantly over the next period of time by almost effectively exchanging our direct activities in Asia and Europe for indirect activities. That's going to become quite a, a shift. We will, however, continue in the UK and in North America the same direct on-the-ground business that we have today. Those are big businesses. They've got enough critical mass. They're effective. They're efficient. They're delivering good returns. So those two businesses will stay as they are. Asia and Europe will switch more into the indirect. Right. So instead of have small businesses in those countries and having to manage them and have a span of control over them, now you have a span of control as a minority partner in an investment vehicle. And you guys had uh, Grosvenor Real Investment Management some years ago this is replacing that strategy with instead of having your own funds, you're investing in other funds, but investing in a big way. Correct. So it's very much part of the same theme. It's looking at it the other way around and saying, well, look, you know, we could set up on our own, as we have been doing in different markets, set up our own operating capabilities, then invite third party capital that we're going to manage. Right. That, that works in some cases quite well for us. In other cases, it didn't. But it never really got off. It never really got us to the point whereby we were significant enough as an asset manager to be able to generate the real, uh, really significant returns we thought we could. And I think it's as with most things in the world of, of, of business at the moment, there's a bifurcation. And unless you're a really niche little operator, one man and a dog, or a really significant large scale fund manager, you just don't want to be in the middle. And we were a bit in the middle. And so I think we concluded we were better off looking at this the other way around. And it's really, it's really flown very well for us. 
That makes a ton of sense. And then some of those investments that you've made, first of all, everyone loves having a large, patient, active investor in their pool. So that that's the best kind of capital out there instead of hot money capital or high high load capital, having someone like you is kind of a dream. Yeah, that's what we found is that people recognize that. And I think probably also because we've got some credibility by being a direct property investor ourselves. Right. You know, we're not just another faceless investor that has no track record or or visible manifestation of expertise. You know, we've, we've been able to play it both ways, and I think that's worked very well for us. Cool. And, and now this may segue us into the conversation about stewardship and long-termism. I've noticed that one of your investments is with Bridge Investment Partners in Salt Lake, and they have a number of funds around workforce housing in particular. And I don't know their climate change stance, but I do know that their approach to multifamily is longer term kind of hold properties. Talk talk about that, and then we'll get into this long-term thinking. I mean, that's a very good example. Matt, that's a very good example of the indirect business, of an investment that the indirect business is making, that one you just referred to. I mean, on our own, with our own team, you know, would we be able to start up that kind of activity? No, we need to find someone who's really good at it and is focused on it, and Bridges are a perfect example to, Bridge is a perfect example of someone who, who we've selected, and they they've seen us as an opportunity to raise some, some patient capital, and it's working really well. That's great. That's great. So talk about your own portfolio. Talk about this thought of stewardship and talk about what long-term ownership means and what kind of muscles you're able to flex as a long-term owner different than most of real estate investment management. Sure. Well, I think probably the best thing to do is to give you some examples. So we've been spending quite a lot of time and, and effort here in London retrofitting our built estate, which of course is largely historic buildings, which are not necessarily very very energy efficient buildings, retrofitting them to become much more efficient. We've got about a 90 million pound program at the moment going around and retrofitting these uh, these buildings, which is usually about insulation, boilers, so the energy provision. And the sort of investment we're making would really, really only make sense if you've got a time scale that you're gonna be owning those assets for, I mean, never mind 15 years, probably 20 or 25 at least. We don't, these assets are not going to be ones we're going to be selling in 250 years, never mind 25 years. So right. there's, a, there's a genuine feeling here that it's, it's worth our while in self-interest terms to make these investments. It also happens to be the right thing to do for society and for the communities and for carbon emissions. So that's, that's where there's a very nice harmony, if you like, between doing the right thing environmentally and socially with it actually being over the sensible time frame we can judge a good investment decision as well. And that's something that's harder for, you know, harder for others to do if they don't have that sort of timescale. So that's one quite good example here in, in London. And let me just ask a question on that, because it's it, if you extend the timeline, then any number can make sense. But in a compressed, but you talk about the financial discipline. So is there a two, three, four, five year payback? Is there a 20 year payback, but 20 years is okay if you're holding for right. 200? What's the analysis on that? Yeah. Well, the way we handle that is to effectively, at the shareholder level, we have a we have a view to the long-term return requirements that the shareholder requires, which is the very long term. Mm-hmm. But at the operating company level, we, we hold them to a five-year rolling uh, strategic plan and business plan cycle. And so while, while the shareholder is satisfied with the kinds of returns I've just described from a long-term perspective, the operating business nevertheless has to put forward a plan over a five-year timescale that meets certain minimum thresholds that we set both on the profit side and on total returns. And so that's the way we, we hold the, the teams to account, if you like, in the shorter term, right. while at the same time allowing long-term metrics to drive the bigger strategic decisions. And that becomes a conversation then between the operating business, which says, right, I know I need to deliver on these particular five-year uh, metrics, and the shareholder who says, in this particular case, you know, we're happy to to look at it over a different time scale, and that's a it's a two way conversation that that we hope ultimately lands up with a with a with a happy conclusion. And right. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's tension there, and that's a healthy tension. Mm-hmm. And then there's some debate and argument about how that should work. And is the healthy tension because the long termism 
of the family is pushing the shorter termism of the investment strategy of five year to say, no, let's pretend it's seven years, it's okay, go for it? Or is it the other way around? Who's the pushier in that case? Oh, it's both, both ways. Sometimes it's one way and sometimes it's another. And I, I like to see that balance being, I would worry if it was always right. You know, one pushing the other. I like the fact that sometimes it's a push from the, from the shorter term, sometimes the longer term, because that's my, that's my clue to the fact that we're working appropriately within this balance of, on the one hand, we want to keep people accountable to short-term metrics, but on the other hand, we want to make sure we're true to our long-term uh, values and, and, and shareholder metrics, and it's a balance. Right. And let and let's make this real in a couple different ways, because you're talking about the properties that you're going to hold for 300 years in the states. Let's flip back over to the states where you do invest directly and you will continue to invest directly. I know you have a property I drive by all the time in Novato, California, a retail property that's gorgeous. I don't know you're going to hold that for 300 years or you even know how to think about 300 years in Novato, California. So in what what does long termism mean in terms of investments here versus investments in Mayfair, which go for it? Yeah. By the way, it was when I was in California working in our North American business that I bought that Novato site, which perhaps is I don't know whether whether you're deliberately choosing that because you knew that, but anyway, it's one of my. I forgot that. Look, I think I think it's too easy for people to think about long termism as being. Should we hold this asset for X years or Y years? That's not how I think about it. We might hold a property for six months or nine months or six years or 60 years or 600 years. We might do any number of those different things. Right. That depends on what the appropriate strategy for that asset is, what the market conditions are, all the normal sorts of uh, parameters that most of your listeners would, would typically analyze to, to judge the appropriate hold period for an asset. But the very important thing is that when the really important distinction is that we're not in a situation where we have to sell it by a certain date. You know, we haven't got a fund termination in 10 years or seven years. We haven't got a shareholder breathing down our neck that wants to see their capital returned in year five or year six or year 10 or year 12. Right. And that gives us the ability to, to define the appropriate hold strategy for each asset. And of course, we don't expect to hold all our assets for 300 years. Definitely not. And indeed, even the ones that we have held for 300 years are regularly, and I mean every year, put through a hold cell analysis to establish whether they are still appropriate to hold or not. And the nature of the core estate in London has been that that particular uh, holding has been so attractive and so well performing that genuinely each time we've done the analysis in central London, we've concluded on the balance of alternative investments, we're better off holding them. But it doesn't mean we, it doesn't mean we haven't sold significant amounts of assets in central London. We absolutely have. Uh-huh. I think people assume we, we sit on these assets and never buy or sell. We, we absolutely do. We turn them over more regularly than people might think. And when you turn them over, do you buy them back sometimes too? Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. Of course. In many cases, of course, it's even better than that, Matt, because in, in the UK, which is a little bit, it's certainly common in, in, in the uh, Commonwealth countries where the English tradition in terms of land law has applied, it's not completely unknown in the United States, particularly not in universities, but it, it, it's pretty unusual to have this freehold, leasehold, you call it fee, we call it freehold, freehold, leasehold structure, whereby we can retain the freehold interest, right. sell a long lease. And then, of course, in due course, that lease comes back to us again. So, you know, we, 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 can, we can keep a foot in the, in the door, if you like, uh, as well as economically reducing our, our exposure and then buy it back subsequently. And that happens. You know, we might f- feel that a particular street or block of property has been maxed out we've done as much as we can to it it's become a dry core asset so we sell it out to perhaps an institution who's happy with a lower return and then after 10 15 25 years that asset needs uh, repurposing or redeveloping and typically we might take it back redevelop it relet it and off we go again right again long-term thinking about this and it's interesting because when we talked about when i envisioned this conversation about long-term thinking i assumed it always meant sequential long-term holds but really, the point is you're going to be a real estate investor in 350 years. Whether the assets are the same, whether they trade in and out, doesn't matter as much as that you're going to be doing real estate. And there's reputation against that real estate that's a long-term hold, as well as just the returns that you're getting during that period of time. So you right. do have to be a student. I think it, I just, exactly right. Yeah. I describe it as a way of thinking, a mindset, uh, you know, rather than a set of rules that 
yeah, I think you put it very well in the way you put it, Matt. It's just that we're going to be investing, we're going to be active in this market long into the future. That means we have to mind about our reputation. It means we have to mind about what the impact is that we're leaving, all those things. And I mean, I think quite often I've heard people say, uh, you know, they might have criticized, we might do a transaction in the market that the outside market might see as being less than ultimately commercial. To, to quote your own words back, Matt, you know, we may not have squeezed every last pip out of that asset. Right. Well, maybe under a, maybe under a short-term analysis, that would be correct. But that's not the way we're looking at it. We're looking at, we might be looking at a relationship over a much longer period, which means that actually in the long run, we think reputationally and commercially, we're better off doing that deal now for all manner of other reasons, which may not be visible and, and apparent to the market, but they make sense to us. Let me give you another example, Matt, that's yeah. pandemic related. You know, we, during the pandemic, very quickly, we took the view among our retail tenants here in London, that the best thing we could do was to keep them in business through the pandemic so that we would have streets that were lively and thriving when we came out of the pandemic. Yep. That meant doing some quite significant deals with them on rent relief and other forgiveness, which we really got onto very quickly and very early on. And that, that again, is a really difficult thing for a short-term investor to justify to their shareholders. But it wasn't a difficult thing to justify here because everybody understood that in the long term, that would pay us dividends. And I can already say it has because coming out of the pandemic, those streets indeed were busier and more thriving. The footfall was far higher on our streets right. than it was on many others. And we, came, we, we bounced out of the pandemic very quickly. We had almost no retail vacancy. and we've, So, you know, I think those are the sorts of things one can do again, which is very difficult to do if you're, I very well understand for most of your listeners who say, well, that's all very well for you. We don't have the luxury of having a shareholder who's got that patience. Well, that is a significant uh, advantage, we think. Yeah. So let me pull, I'm thinking of some bubble gum, and I'm going to pull it really far. I'm thinking of elastic. I'm going to pull the extension out there. And a number of our guests have talked about exactly the same thing you have, particularly retail owners during the pandemic. And they all said, we have to keep our tenants as happy as we possibly can. That's really important to, for the stability of the retail center, the retail community. Again, let's think about Novato here to make it real. But what does that look like? But if I keep pulling the elastic further and further out, then you have even some different dynamics, particularly in downtown London that you're playing with, about reputation, not just to the tenant base, but also reputation in the community. And so I want to think about that kind of many, many generational years of reputation that is the estate, not a REIT. And this has come up on the podcast a lot which is two of the dirtiest words in the English language are landlord and developer, and you're both. And one, one challenge I bring to particularly our, our, our organizations in the business, the Urban Land Institute, National Multi-Housing Council, and the apartment business, is how do we reclaim those words to not have all negative associations in the popular mind? And it's a huge challenge. I was last week at the National Multi-Housing Council where I got COVID, so not good, but also where we were demonstrated against. And, you know, and these are responsible landlords. So get to that and what that means when you have the name Duke in front of you or Grosvenor Estate in front of you, not just the name of a REIT, which is 30 or, you know, 15 years right. old or whatever. Quite right. So what do I think about this subject? I think about this a lot. I mean, yeah. first of all, First of all, the real estate industry, let's face it, has not been anything like innovative enough as an industry. We've been able to get away without being very innovative, unlike most other industrial sectors. So I think to some extent, there's a legitimate challenge that can be laid at our door as an industry that we've, you know, we've been, we've been able to enjoy a business model that hasn't really changed since, well, since the dawn of English law in the Middle Ages in this country, when right. someone invented a lease as a way to put a, a, a contract between somebody who owned land and somebody who wanted to occupy it. And essentially, that model hasn't changed. <laughs> so I think that's one reason why we get this sort of what we think of as being very unfair press. The second reason is that we've done a very poor job of lobbying for ourselves and making our case as an industry. Right. And we've got to get a lot smarter about that. So how do we go about doing that? Well, it seems to me that the the enormous opportunity and challenge that climate change face, is face, faces is the answer to this. Because if we can demonstrate to the wider community that we're taking that 
appropriately seriously and doing something about it. I think that could be a very interesting key to unlock this problem, image problem. I'll call it an image problem we've got, which I completely agree with you. We do have as an industry. And you're right. It's definitely a little bit harder still if you are a duke who inherited all this land and, you know, arguably didn't, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't, in some people's minds, didn't deserve it, as it were. Yep. So that, that landlord image is extremely unhelpful. And I think, you know, we, we, we're doing a lot, as much as we can, I think, on the environmental side particularly, but also on the social side to now address that. I mean, I would, I would say that as part of being a long-term investor and owner, we've always been very concerned about our reputation and about the communities that we're active in. But I don't think we've done anything like as good a job of actually explaining and telling everybody what we've been doing. We've probably been rather shy of doing that, actually. Mm-hmm. And so there's an image problem. And I think, I think the unlocking it is a lot to do with environmental and social value, where the real estate industry has a huge role to play yep. you know, because we play such a vital part of people's lives. So there is an op- I think there is a way through this for us. Uh-huh. Uh, but we're starting, from a, we're starting from negative 10. Yeah, we sure are. And it's funny because I'm thinking again of Britain, I'm thinking of Dickens, right? It's Dickinsonian, the, the word landlord, not the word developer, but that it starts there, which is this negative connotation towards it. But I'm also Great. thinking yeah. that it because it is personalized to a duke, maybe that makes it worse and harder, or maybe that makes it easier because you can take some responsibility against that, both on climate change and then against the housing shortage because rents have just gone nuts. So that pain point then can become associated with you and you could deflect it somewhat by more patient perspective. For sure. Absolutely right. And so, you know, we've got a number of initiatives, um, both on, on the environmental side, specifically carbon zero initiatives and also affordable housing and others, which are designed to do exactly that. And of course, on the one hand, uh, people might expect and demand and challenge the Duke as an individual as to what he's doing to help. But on the other hand, because we are doing quite a lot, as you rightly say, he has the opportunity to own that message and deliver it very personally, which indeed he he does and his father did. Mm-hmm. And talk about, so from both perspectives on this, first in London, England, UK, and then talk about it globally, talk about more about climate, let's drill down into it. Are we able and do we have the tools that we need to affect this in your properties or in the properties that you build? I think, actually, I'm really quite optimistic about this. I think we do now have the technology, and not just in the real estate industry, by the way, but also more broadly in the energy sector. We do now have the technology to solve this problem, which is a massively exciting opportunity at a time when, my goodness, we certainly need some optimistic uh, thoughts to help us through. So I think we do have the technology. Unfortunately, we don't always have either the will or, uh, unfortunately, even more unfortunately, the regulatory and compliance environment to enable us to actually go ahead and deploy all of those technologies. So the will, well, that's down to all of us as leaders to to make it happen. And, and I think in particular, the challenge to shareholders who otherwise might take a short-term view mm-hmm. to encourage them to see that actually, you know, there won't be a long-term unless the short-term view starts to think more about the long-term. <laughs> and, and they right. really have a responsibility to think about this more, more seriously. As far as the regulatory side of things, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the UK, um, as as you'll know, we have a very large number of historic buildings which are historic, and therefore there's a limited there's a limited amount of of, uh, of adaptation that you're allowed to to make to these properties, which is preventing us from from right. making them more environmentally, uh, giving them better energy performance, and that's a problem. And we are busy on that score here at Grosvenor in. In, in really campaigning quite hard for some for some an overhaul of the environment, the compliance environment, to make it possible to make changes to our buildings to make them more environmentally sound and solid. And I think that's that's entirely possible. Uh-huh. And let me ask a couple questions about that because it's interest interesting. One is that I argue that sometimes it wants to be a portfolio view versus every building. If it applies to this building, it has to apply to every building. In some buildings, you maybe can't retrofit and are too precious to try to retrofit, and you ruin it by retrofitting, but the rest of the portfolio you can go overboard, so therefore you're getting to a better goal than pretending you could do it everywhere 100%. Any comments to that? Oh, well, I think, I mean, you know, one has to be pragmatic, and um, the way I've challenged the team here is to say, we're not going to 
let me let me put this in terms of social benefit rather than environmental but right. make the same point we're not going to make a huge amount of money over here in order to give it away over there right we're going we're going to make a significant amount of return across the board and we're going to do social good everywhere because it's no good saying we're going to help people out over here uh, disproportionately yep. but we're not going to help people out over there so socially the social picture i think has to be well spread across all of our activities but environmentally we are dealing with circumstances that are outside of our control and so absolutely there may be some particular buildings where we can only go so far either because of their very unique architecture or other features or because regulatory we just can't make the changes we'd like to make i mean there are buildings here for example that we cannot double glaze the windows well a single glazed window is the easiest way of letting heat escape into the outer atmosphere yeah but in some buildings we simply can't make that change well okay so we we're going to try and do more elsewhere absolutely uh-huh. And talk about charity versus behavior in the portfolio, and if, if that touches off a, a concept for you, because I think you've mentioned that in somewhere else I heard you talk. I mean, there is a foundation here, the Westminster Foundation, which is the family charitable organization, which is just solely in the business of making yeah. grants to charities. So that's one end of the extreme. But all of our commercial activities are required to make an impact environmentally and socially as well as financially. And so when we are putting our plans together and our strategies together for portfolios and individual buildings, we're expecting to see how our management, our intervention, our development of these buildings will make an impact across all those different areas. So I don't call that I don't call that charity. Right. I call that being a responsible citizen. Yeah, sure. So so make that real for our listeners, both with a UK example and the US example of being a responsible citizen and how you judge a property from not just the economic returns, but the contribution it's going to make. Yeah, well, I suppose um, something close to Americans' hearts is Grosvenor Square, which is the part of some of you, some of your listeners will know that the U.S. Embassy, until very recently, was located on Grosvenor Square here in the middle of our London portfolio. And that square is a, one of the largest squares in London. And we're in the, mid, we're in the middle at the moment of uh, completely redesigning that s- square to provide much more public access, biodiversity, uh, interesting cultural activity in that square to engage the local community. Whereas at the moment, it's just concrete paths and grass mm-hmm. and a statue of Roosevelt, very nice statue of Roosevelt and some other American right. uh, memorabilia, which will stay, by the way. And that costs money and time, but it makes a big impact in the local community and, and certainly makes also an environmental impact. It's interesting because they talk about bike lanes and the, or, the, or hiking trails and the economic advantage that a hiking trail has on the homes surrounding the hiking trail, and that's infrastructure. And you're talking with Grosvenor Square. If you're surrounding that square, the better the square is, your values go crazy up. And if they don't, you're in trouble. Exactly. Self-interest, enlightened self-interest is a wonderful word. Yeah. What are we missing in this conversation about stewardship? And are there other messages that you want to drive home on the concept that we're talking about? Well, I wouldn't have thought to answer the question this way were it not for the fact that you you prefaced, you prefaced your question by asking me about my career. Maybe that was deliberate, but it certainly makes me think about answering your question in the way that I have now become, I suppose, so much a part of the fabric here. I mean, that itself can be dangerous, but... What it means, I think, after 30-something years here at Grosvenor is that, uh, you know, I suppose I feel a, a, a very strong sense of belonging and commitment to the organization and to the Grosvenor family that means that I really can, can no longer distinguish between what Mark Preston thinks uh, vis-a-vis his career <laughs> and what Mark Preston thinks vis-a-vis his responsibilities to Grosvenor because they're the same thing. Of course. And I hope I'm not being obscure. What I'm trying to say, I think, is that the advantage of having worked up through Grover in the way I have is that I'm really all the time thinking about what is the future Mark Preston going to think about what the current Mark Preston is doing, <laughs> rather than the perfectly normal human condition, which is to say, well, the future Mark Preston is going to be somewhere else doing something else, so I don't need to worry about that too much. Uh-huh. And that was a perfectly normal reaction from most people in most corporate situations. But it's, it's, it certainly makes me think differently about, to your question of stewardship, right? knowing that, that actually I'm going to be the one who's going to be accountable for these things, assuming I'm still here. At some point I won't be, of course, but, 
Uh, and, and I think that that is a that is definitely conditions the way I think about the business, most definitely. It's interesting. I've I, I've had one mayor on the show, and and we were talking about the subject, and we were talking about that person's four year term and what they would accomplish during the four year term and what the goals of that term and period would be. And it's a mayor's different than a king who's going to have a thirty year reign. But it gets to one of the other topics about this, which is really long-termerism. And if you view that you will be here and you will retire here and this was your whole career, then the concept of long-termerism for you yourself becomes incredibly real. You have to live with this. Exactly. Of course, there's massive dangers in that too, which is, again, going back to complacency. Yes. you know, lack of fresh thinking, and we have to have a balance. You know, we have to we have to make sure that we've got a mix in our executive team of people who are fresh and coming in with new ideas, as well as people who, uh-huh. who like me, have been here for a while. And so, balance is really very important. And I'm constantly aware of the risk that I that I don't uh, have that you know that outside fresh look. And so, I have to rely on other people to provide that and to challenge me. And that requires obviously a degree of transparency and openness, which I regard as being part and parcel of my job, i.e. I'm very, I'm very conscious that I don't know best, uh-huh. but at the same time, I do understand the organization and its long-term values and, uh, and, and priorities. That means I can balance new ideas uh, with, this same, with this long-term perspective. Yeah. And, I, and I hope that works well. It certainly feels to me like it's a good, it's a good combination for, for Grosvenor. It's interesting because when I first met you 25 years ago in, in Marin County, when you were on your tour here in the States, it felt like an organization, and I use these words because you were a client back then, quietly to my, my colleagues, but it felt like a complacent organization, and it felt as if tradition was overwhelming it instead of allowing it to be innovative in any way. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think looking back to those days, I think that's a fair observation. It was polite of you not to throw it at me at the time. I'm not sure how I would have dealt with it, but, but I, I, certainly, I certainly recognize what you mean, and I think the organization has changed enormously in that time, while at the same time not sacrificing those things which we think are really permanent about the way we do business and the values, how we treat people, our responsibility towards the community. But I would say that's, that the organization is enormously different than it was then, and I think you can see that from some of the things we're now doing. We need to be ever careful about that complacency risk. It's a balance. And, and, and I'm curious about a couple of things. It's a balance and there's long-term organizations. We do business every day with the REITs or long-term organizations. I think Blackstone's going to be here for a while too. And if you look at them as an institution, look at your organization's institution, you don't need to be any less innovative than those organizations. It just depends on leadership. Yeah, quite right. Exactly. We can actually make, we can experiment uh, in a way that maybe others cannot. And so that's an advantage too. And we are doing, we're doing a variety of, for example, I'll give you an example of that. We've recently started to do something which I never would have thought we would do. In fact, I probably would have been very against it five years ago, which is we're now actually investing in the businesses of our occupiers, our tenants, where we see them to have real potential. Now, five years ago, I would have said, don't be ridiculous. You know, we're in the business of real estate. We don't understand the operating businesses of our tenants. That's for them to do. I now take a very different view, which is our business is their business, and we need to get closer to them. And any way we can be close to our occupiers is going to be good, both for our relationship with them, right. but ultimately for our business. In other words, it's moving again. It's moving away from this passive, sort of rentier landlord image, much more to a partnership, which I hope is part and parcel of creating this different image of of, of invest of landlord and developer from the one that we've known for. For all time. Right. It's interesting. Last guest on the podcast or two guests ago was from Life Sciences Bio, Biomed, head of Biomed Blackstone Company. And in that space in particular, what you're describing is not essential, but it's a critical differential that they're able to play in the business because they can invest on the other side with these biotech companies. Yeah. But they're really yeah. almost venture capitalists in terms of the risks they're taking and the companies they're getting to know. So yeah. really matters. Which, of course, on the food and ag, we've not talked about it, so, but on the food and ag side, yep. that's exactly what we are. That's, that's entirely what we're doing there. Yeah, and talk about the energy or, or not energy that's brought to your hiring and the young people in your organization, given this long-termerism perspective that 20 years ago didn't really exist anymore. We didn't think of it that way. But now, with, particularly with climate change, it's top of mind. Well, I mean, I would certainly say that the sort of employer proposition now 
is all about the impact we're having socially and environmentally. And it would be wrong to say every, every new joiner and every graduate coming here is coming because of that. But I think most of them are. Mm-hmm. And I think probably nearly all of them wouldn't be here if it was simply, frankly, how it was when I started out my career, which was you know a good job with a good employer with, with interesting properties. I mean, it's most definitely that's very, very significant change. We've had to run pretty fast to uh, keep up with, actually, I'd say. But again, the proposition we've got, the long-term approach as witnessed in the way we can have an impact on everything from you know, biodiversity in Grosvenor Square right. to lowest carbon milk producer in our um, dairy farm activities to phosphate recovery to uh, improve sustainable f- farming agriculture to uh, and combined heat and power technologies in some of our new office buildings and on and on and on is absolutely central to our ability to attract people now, for sure. It's wonderful. Hey, I'm going to skip the whole section talking about your career, which might, might for you feel like a blessing. So, cause we're going to run out of time and I, I'd like to go up another 5,000 feet because I want to mash up a couple of thoughts here that have been on the sidelines of the conversation, and we started there a little bit. But in Great Britain, you just went through the death of the queen, the ascension of a new king who actually knows what real estate is, cares about real estate, cares about communities, cares about the climate, actually. I mean, these are things that King Charles has been talking about for years and years. I want to mash that up with our global fascination with thrones and with succession and our fascination and fear of climate change. So all these things mash up together. Any comments on, is there a metaphor within the change of leadership there with all the themes that we're talking about here? Oh my goodness, Matt, that's a really <laughs> tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. I've got to avoid getting into constitutional uh, issues, which I'm not qualified to talk about. But what comes to mind, I think, it, are a couple of thoughts. The first relates to the extraordinary scenes that I think you'll have seen on your television screens around the late Queen's death and what was said about her and about her as a leader. I think that's important to just touch on. Yeah. And then secondly, more directly to your question, what role our new king might play specifically with regard to environmental issues and, and, and property's role there. I think that the first point is that I thought it was, I mean, it couldn't be more timely to have people reflect on the extraordinary example that the late Queen gave us all of duty and responsibility and integrity and probity and frankly all the things that are so patently lacking in so many of our political leaders today. And so that, that I thought was it, it was an interesting moment in time given what's been going on with populism and so on. I think it was quite an interesting moment just for everybody to reflect on just the extraordinary example of leadership that that somebody with that lifelong commitment was able to give. And stability. With our, and stability, yeah. And I mean, it's an irony, isn't it? That it's a, it's a supreme irony that the thing that we, that we all could not tolerate as democratic electorate, i.e. the idea that our leader should be, you know, a hereditary uh, ruler with no dem- democratic authority, is actually more loved and more appreciated and more respected than anybody we've ever elected ourselves. It's a supreme irony, really, isn't it's it? It's fascinating. I'm not, suggesting we should, I'm not suggesting we should upend it. Of course I'm not. But it's just a very interesting observation. Anyway, moving on to your to more important point. I mean, the, the challenge, I think, for the king, of course, is that as king, constitutionally, he has to be very much more careful about what he says and what he does than he was when he was Prince of Wales. So a lot of what we've seen him do and say, he will be unable to do and say. And he'll be relying on those things that he's put in place as the Prince of Wales to carry on under their own steam and their own leadership. But this is just going to be interesting to see. But I find it difficult to believe that those things that he feels so passionate about are going to be things that he's simply going to go quiet on. And we'll just have to see, Matt, whether his leadership as as king in those areas is going to make the difference that I think we all need it to make. Right. And so I hope I hope he finds a way to keep you on the right side of the constitutional requirements of devolving power to an elected government, which of course he must. But on the other hand, still con- using his what he calls his convening power to make things happen environmentally. That as you as you say, he was, he was talking about long before the rest of us cottoned on to what was really needed 
So I think he has he has some real credibility and track record there, which would be a shame if we don't see come through. And I'm sure it will in some way, but it will be different. It cannot be the same. It's interesting because leadership matters, and I will get political for a moment, our prior president of the United States, environmentalism didn't count, didn't matter, was not part of it. And short-termerism was everything. But short-termerism was the byline versus leadership and long-termerism. And I think you have that opportunity yeah. in your country and with everything we've talked about. Yeah, but that's for sure. I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, we, we, when we need long-termism more and more, we seem to get more and more short-termism. And I suppose that's, to some extent, the, the world of social media and instant, instant communications, which is in, in some ways a blessing, but in so many ways is a curse. And I'm not sure that I, I'm, I'm not, can't go, I can't get into that. That's just, just one of the things we've all got to grapple with, isn't it? Given these points, the last question on leading voices is always advice for a young person entering into the real estate industry. Okay. Well, the first thing I would I always say to young people when I'm talking to them is don't go into real estate because your father or your cousin or your uncle or your anybody else tells you that's what you should do. And there are a lot of people in our industry are in it because their family was in it. Yep. And so that to me is the worst reason not just the worst reason to go into, I mean, it's the worst reason to do anything because you're, because just because you, you, you're told to do it. I mean, so I think the real, the best piece of advice is think through what matters to you personally. What are the things that get you interested? What are the things that you find exciting and industry and interesting? And then pursue those as hard and as strongly and as persistently as you can. If that takes you into real estate, that's great. But if in fact, after you've re reflected on it, it actually takes you somewhere else. For heaven's sake, go somewhere else. So that would be the first thing I would say. But assuming nobody's put off and they're still saying, yeah, 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 I've done all that thinking. I want to go into real estate. Then what? Well, I think I think the best piece of advice then is to go and talk to people who other young people who are in the industry who recently started out and try and find out what's going to be the best way to get going for you because there are so many different entry points. And you know, for some for some people, they've found a very effective way to to get into real estate. The advisory side, because that, that suits their particular characteristics. That was never going to be a good way in for me because I was never I knew I was never going to be very good at selling something to somebody if I didn't fully believe in it myself. <laughs> and I, I'd be a useless salesman. So I think thinking through what kind of a personality you are, are you a are you a you know strongly optimistic, risk-taking kind of person? Well, that's going to lead you towards development typically. Right. Are you a more conservative, you know, risk risk averse? institutional type of character. I think trying to figure out which entry point is probably the second area of advice. And I think you can only do that by talking to people who are in the industry, finding out what they do, and being really honest with yourself about what interests you, what you're good at, what you're bad at. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's not that difficult for people to decide whether they're risk takers or not risk takers, right. whether they're optimists or pessimists. People will tend to convince themselves that they're something else, but most of us know deep down which we are. And I think that's an important thing to start, to start off with. Be really honest with yourself about where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. It's interesting as I talk to people about this. My suggestion is the same but slightly different, which is try this, try that, try the other thing. And because you have views of, oh, I like this person, I want to do what they do. But you may not be them. You may not be like them. You may be attracted to the risk taker, but you might actually be the asset manager yourself. Right. And you don't yeah. know that till you do it and you go, wow, I'm really good at this. I really like this. This makes my heart sing. Of course. That's got to be the next. Yeah, you're quite right. Go out and try. Experiment. Be brave. And in particular, when a door opens in a new area that you might immediately think, oh, that's not for me. Just think twice. Maybe you need to go and just try that before you rule it out. And on the whole... On the whole, when a door opens for you, be very careful to slam it shut. Not only because it sends a message to whoever it is who's offered you that door opening, that you're closed-minded, you're not up for a new challenge. So I think you're right. Early in your career, go out, experiment, do new things, do different things, particularly these days when you know there's so much new opportunity in new areas that is entrepreneurial and exciting and different. And there's no stigma at all in going and trying those things out in the way that perhaps there was you know, in our day, Matt, when people would, would, would think you were flighty in some way if you did that. Not at all. I think that's to be really encouraged. I would agree with you. You must go and work with decent people. You must not settle for an environment where, you know, your own personal values are at odds with the ones of the people that you're working for or with. I think in that situation, 
you've got to be really brutally straightforward. And there are lots of wonderful people out there to go and work for. So go and find those people and don't settle for people who, whose values you have a, an instinctive feeling might be wrong. Trust your instincts, in other words, I think is what I'm saying. 100% on that comment, and I fully agree with this, as well as everything we've talked about. This has been a great conversation, Mark, so thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Nice to see you. And Mark, I'll see you sometime in London or San Francisco again, I hope. Yeah, look forward to that. So talking about the Duke only gets me thinking about one thing. And for anyone who plays music, C, A minor, F, G, especially guitar, was the essence of the 50s and 60s. podcast thinking about this. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.